Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host, Woodzik, and my pronouns are they, them, and theirs. This is episode 142 with Kevin Cantor and Sophia Metcalf. Both of these amazing performers and poets are currently performing in repertory at Utah Shakespeare Festival in All's Well That Ends Well and The Tempest. Learn more about those productions at www.bard.org. Follow Kevin and Sophia on Instagram at Kevin underscore Cantor, spelled K-E-V-I-N underscore K-A-N-T-O-R, and Sophia K. Metcalf, spelled S-O-P-H-I-A-K-M-E-T-C-A-L-F. The Theatrical Mustang Podcast features interviews with unbridled talent and cultural trailblazers across the country. This reboot is distributed by American Theater. Episodes 1 through 138 are archived at theatricalmustang.podbean.com. And now, enjoy episode 142 with Kevin Cantor and Sophia Metcalf. So I'm very excited to welcome to the podcast two very talented actors who are currently residing in Utah, working with Utah Shakespeare Festival. We have Sophia Metcalf and Kevin Cantor. Welcome to the podcast. Hi. Hello. Thank you so much. So Kevin, you're returning to the podcast. And Sophia, this is your first go round on this magical merry-go-round um, can you two talk to me a little bit about what roles you are playing at Utah Shakes? And I know you're in the midst of opening shows and all that. So thank you for taking a moment out of your busy schedules um, to share a little bit about what's going on. Let's start with you, Kevin. Absolutely. Hi, friend. Um, so, yeah, we are here in illustrious Cedar City, Utah. It is both my and Sophia's first season with the festival. I am playing Paroles in All's Well That Ends Well, directed by Belinda Funstein, and Trinculo in The Tempest, directed by Cameron Knight. Uh, Sophia is also in those shows with me. Who are you playing, Sophia? Yeah, um, I'm playing Ariel in The Tempest, and then I'm an ensemble member and musician in, in, and then I'm an ensemble member and musician in All's Well. Um, and I'm recovering from COVID, so if my voice sounds wild, uh, that's what it sounds like. <laughs> well, that makes it even more special, and I'm even more grateful that you're here after battling with or currently being on the tail end of that, which is just a reality, unfortunately, I think, for a lot of live theater um, right now. Um Let's talk. Let's talk about like non-binary actors and Shakespeare, because the thing that perked me, perked my dog ears up a little bit was usually I see a Shakespeare festival, maybe maybe Island Shakespeare Festival would be the exception. And there's like one there's like the one non-binary actor that's in the repertory season. And I just I have so much respect for the work that you two do and your talent, especially in Shakespeare. And so to see both of you and the fact that you're both on the same track in terms of those two shows, do you want to talk a little bit about how you came to those roles and what your unique take 
perhaps as a non-binary actor is infusing yourself into those roles that have been played many, many times before by many, many actors. Um, I mean, Ariel, perhaps actors of multiple genders, but Parolis, maybe not so much. Um, so Sophia, you're going to start this answer. We'll switch yeah. it back and forth a little. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll comment first on what you said about, like, you know, there typically only being one, like, trans actor in the season, you know. Um, and I think, <laughs> like, the the joy of having at least one other uh, trans actor on this cast is amazing. Also, though, there's a 60-person company, and there's just two of us, and we're both white. And um, <laughs> we're both, like close enough to cis that I think we make people a little bit more comfortable, or at least I could say that about me. That cis like perceived for sure. Cis perceived outside of like, yeah, the company of of uh I don't cis perceived outside of the company of other queer and trans folks, I think, a lot of the time. Um and so I think that um although it's been wow, you can tell I really have the brain fog. <laughs> So glad we didn't do this on Wednesday. Okay. <laughs> For me, I've always found a lot of freedom in Shakespeare's work um, in terms of gender expression because I typically don't get cast as the women in Shakespeare, um, which is not necessarily true of contemporary theater. It kind of depends on the playwright and depends on the world of the play. But a lot of times uh, in Shakespeare specifically, I get cast as the sprites and the clowns who are typically using he, him pronouns. And so there's a amount of fluidity and freedom for me there. Um, and I think that holds true for Ariel too. You know, we, we walked into the Tempest room and I was like, this character literally doesn't have a gender, which is so good for me. Like Ariel is just like, uh, like has no human, uh, facility and so there's an amount of freedom there for me in terms of inventing you know how their gender is perceived how they move through the world that doesn't have anything to do with gendered perceptions of myself as a person um and then all's well i get to wear a tux and play the saxophone which is also kind of genderless <laughs> i saw your picture on instagram it was amazing your wig and your whole it gave me seeing you dressed up in that getup gave me gender euphoria. Does that make sense? Yeah, it's very I love. like <laughs> yeah, I love yeah, it's very like gender imposter from the 20s, which like I love. Like it, it's very yes. like I am like <laughs> one of my friends and I, like, we were like looking in a mirror and I was like, this is a buddy comedy about me killing your husband and us running away together. Like that is what this is giving. Um, so that, <laughs> Which that is, is all really well that ends well that I would like to see, frankly. That's really what it is. Okay, you have to talk about Parolas. <laughs> yeah. Before I dive into my first piece, I feel like it's perhaps important for me to preface to our listeners that will I will often say things that perhaps sound essentialist, and I don't mean them essentially but rather it's a rhetorical device so as to convey the fact that I feel passionately or strongly believe in something. Um, for example, Shakespeare is incredibly gay. <laughs> and if you're not doing Shakespeare with any queerness endowed in it, uh, you're doing it wrong. Um, See, that's essentialist, but I don't really mean that all the way. Uh, but I definitely think that you're doing the least interesting version of it because Shakespeare is so gay. It's so queer. Uh, so I was really excited and interested in um, 
this approach that we were going to be potentially, you know, working to queer the canon a little bit this season with the inclusion of Sophia and I. And just to reiterate Sophia's point, yeah, there's more than one of us, but there's still only two of us in the acting company, you know. Right. And there's uh, 60 actors. There's so many of them. And neither right. of us, like, <laughs> there's, we're not and, musicals. Like. And, and again, this is not an indictment. It is just a recognition of the fact uh, that this is the first time in an institution's 63-year history that uh, a non-cis person is playing a principal on their stages. Cool, right? <laughs> um, so yeah, Paroles in All's Well That Ends Well, a lot of our listeners may not be familiar with All's Well That Ends Well. It's not done as often as a lot of the other Shakespeare's. And what is actually quite interesting about our production is that everyone in the room, from the designers to the director, creative team, actors, none of us have worked on this play before. It's our first time with the with the text as well. So it's been a an exciting learning experience. And I think it's also lent a lot of room for exploration because we're not coming in with those preconceived notions that I think that a lot of folks have with other Shakespeare shows. Like Sophia and I have joked that like when you're doing Twelfth Night, when you're doing Midsummer, you go in and you're like, okay, so like which one are we, like which version of Twelfth Night are we doing? You know, right. uh, like Twelfth Night on Mars, Twelfth Night in, you know, like like we, we, we know the show, right? A lot of folks Is don't know all of Twelfth Night? Well. Is it though? Cogs on everything. Cogs the, on the pounds. Is it the 200th version of Steampunk Twelfth Night? Is it? Listen, <laughs> in, in in my in my undergraduate uh, training, they did a Steampunk Sweeney Todd, which I'm like, Steampunk yeah, is already, yeah. it, it is literally, it is literally that era, Sweeney Todd era, and just like adding cogs to things. <laughs> like, wild. Anyway, I was approached specifically for the role of Paroles in All's Well That Ends Well, because there was a particular interest in being having an explicit queer representation with the character. And I want to shout out specifically our dramaturg, Isabel Smith Bernstein, who is a genius. You should hire her all the time, everywhere, anyone listening. Uh, she also teaches at SUNY New Paltz. Um, incredible. Uh, and so we're taking a pretty explicit queer approach to paroles in that the design, the presentation, the characterization is pretty visibly gender nonconforming, uh, very readably queer. And as exciting as that is to be able to be playing that on stage, I would argue it is not at all a far departure from the text. <laughs> it is what the text actually suggests, I think. It's just done in a very different way, usually, which is uh, a cis man performing hyper-masculinity right. to the point of failure, right? Which is, you know, it, it, it's always been a commentary. Also, that Unwell has always been a commentary on gender roles, sex, and lust. And we are just doing it in, I think, a very, very pointed way, um, which has been a, a rewarding and challenging experience for a number of variables that I'd be happy to get into. Well, no, I mean, like, let's let's get into it. The first, I hate that, the first place that my mind goes is, I, I mean, I felt my breath catch a little bit in a way I didn't want to in terms of, I love that so much and I want to see that. And I have a question and maybe it's my, you know, self-bias about what audiences 
who are coming to Utah Shakes are expecting from their Shakespeare. And like, there was a little bit of a, I want, I want you to be okay. Like I felt protective of you in that moment. And I just want to like share that. But does, I mean, maybe for both of you, like, I don't know, to me, like visibly queer actors and uh, Shakespeare and perhaps more conservative location doesn't seem like a peanut butter and jelly combination, right? Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do y'all want to speak to that a little bit? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I will echo your sentiment that, that that is, we are bringing our own assumptions to the table when we levy those concerns. Right. And they're valid and more often than not prove true, right? Again, nothing is essentialist, right? That being said, I, I I don't want to speak specifically to Utah Shakespeare Festival. I can't quite help it, considering that that is the current like experience that I'm steeped in. But know that what I'm about to say feels like a feels broader than just my experiences here. Yeah. yeah. Something that's been affirmed for me in my seven weeks here at Utah Shakespeare Festival is just how much institutions such as Utah Shakespeare Festival, these large repertory companies, these large regional institutions have to learn from bringing in artists like Sophia and I, that there is so much that a community and an institution can benefit from by expanding the horizon of the perspectives of the creatives that they're bringing to the table. Another thing that I want to levy is that I have learned that I am not interested in, nor do I think I believe in catering to the assumed prejudice and bigotry of your patrons. I think I w- the creative team came to me in in a not so direct way, and, and in, frankly, I wish they had been a little bit more direct, that there was concern about the reaction that patrons might have to a visibly queer, explicitly queer story being told on stage. And my initial reaction to that was, while I understand that you are offering that to me for perhaps my safety and my comfort and my preparedness, my question is then, why did you invite me here if you weren't ready to allow me to stand in my truth despite that, in hopes that that might do some work of educating, that might do some work of expanding perspectives and expanding horizons of that base. And moreover, something that I am not interested in is tamping down or offering a palatable version of queerness as a sort of like introduction to audiences that may not be primed to experience it. Because really what you're, what you're asking me to, the question that I have, the question that I then have is how much of my patience and my time do you expect me to lend your audiences for their progress? And I don't know that that's a fair question. And moreover, when you cater to a base audience that may come with these prejudices, may come with these aversions to particular people being featured on your stage, when you're catering to those people in hopes of saving a dollar, Uh, or maintaining subscription, or maybe even in good faith, trying to help them learn. When you're catering to those people, you're actually actively excluding more people from your stages that already share the quote unquote values that you claim to. 
So like, yeah. do the math. It's a question. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Wow. I rambled a lot. Sorry, Ray. I thought that was really beautifully said. Uh, Sophia, I'd love you to get in here in terms of, I mean, I think, and I'm judging myself harshly for like sharing that visceral reaction, but I, I guess I just wanted to name that within myself. But I think there is, it's an interesting gap. And I spend a lot of my time thinking about companies, especially larger institutions that want to be more inclusive and that bring people into spaces. And like, how do we empower those artists that are coming into those spaces to really speak their truth and live their truth, as Kevin was saying, and have an enjoyable experience. I mean, I you bring so much to this. You have so much experience in classical theater. And I guess what, as I ramble, what do you hope your legacy is at the end of this season? Like what will feel like a really successful oh experience for you at the end of the summer? What a question. All right, hold on. I, I want to bookmark two things that Kevin had brought up that I, I was like kind of thinking about Please, as we were yeah. talking and then circle back to the idea of legacy at the Utah Shakespeare Festival. Um, <laughs> the first is that, you know, we're talking about quality of life and, and uh, whether there is a certain amount of danger to being visibly queer on stage in such a small community. Um, because like, you know, there's folks who will see me I in, in Tempest, they're dyeing my hair teal. I'm going to be very visible as the teal fairy in my day-to-day life. Right. <laughs> um, and at the same time, I think one of the privileges that I have as somebody who is like trans mask is that the patriarchy does not view that as inherently dangerous as it does as someone who is choosing to go away from masculinity. So there is a certain amount of hate crime that happens to me that is just kind of funny, um, at least to me, because it's not actually dangerous. Um, for instance, I told Kevin this, I was doing a tour of a sh- of a Twelfth Night in New York City as Feste, and I was in a school and some kid called me Justin Bieber and threw a water bottle at me, which is just a very <laughs> funny hate crime. That is a very funny... <laughs> like... <laughs> Like, that is a read that is correct, and it's just funny to me. Um, I've also had somebody follow me asking for a dollar, yelling, hey, LGBTQ, and then when I refused to give them a dollar, call me not a real lesbian, and I was like, great. (laughs) So, like, there's a certain amount of, like me walking around the world as butch that actually I think affords me some protection um, because in my uh, in my armoring of myself in that way in my haircut in my like working out and trying to look really buff like there's a certain amount of and again like Kevin was talking about like you know essentialisms and this is definitely one this is not the truth for all trans mask people but for me um that choice, I think, is less uh, dangerous because patriarchy is really just rooted in misogyny, right? And, like, the hatred of the feminization of beings. Close parentheses. Um, I think the other thing... So, in terms of, like, you know, a legacy at Utah Shakes, <laughs> which I'm laughing about. Why do you just laugh? Just like, Why do you laugh? <laughs> because I'm like, I don't 
really like I don't know there's so many I we have we have really good friends working here at the festival who like you know they've been here for years especially like uh, there's a couple black and brown cast members who have like come back year after year despite them having equally like kind of um let's just call them like wild experiences of living in really rural southern utah micro um, and macro aggressions abound you know yeah yeah but they continue to come back and i kind of in my first week was like why are you back here that sounds like it was crazy um and they were like it's for the representation like that there is a certain amount of because i am here that one other trans kid in town gets to see something on stage and be like oh my god that's me um, I've experienced that just in my day to day because there isn't a lot of, I've, I've been rewatching Schitt's Creek and yes. there is one cafe in town here. And I was joking that like, I am, we're in it. I'm living in Schitt's Creek. There's one cafe where you could see other trans people or like other queer people. And I just sometimes go sit there with a coffee and just nod to the other lesbians. Um, <laughs> Kevin's got something. <laughs> just to double down on what you're saying in regards to, you know, we are here for those people, you know, like, uh, that we, we can, we can, we can be a visibility for local queer and trans folks. What I will say though, is that when an institution brings people like Sophia and I here, um, you have to then let people know. Yeah, that was, that's pretty major. (laughs) I I think they kind of were just like, uh, and I, I've had friends who have come to this festival before um, who had told me, like, before I came out here, and I shared this with Kevin, too, that they were like, they really love you on stage. Um, and, like, I think that is that is true to a certain extent. I, I We've definitely, I have found community, like, that is not just at the festival. Like, there are folks, like, the baristas at Bristol Cone, just going to shout them out, like... <laughs> They've been my hiking buddies and they're great. Um, like there's some, there's some good folks. Um, and there are like other young liberal people out here. There's a large outdoor community. Um, but I think the festival is kind of like, it's going to be so fun because it always has been really fun for all of like, you know, the white cis people who have been here before. It's so fun. And then they bring like black and brown and trans folks out here on Moss and they're like, isn't it fun? And we're like, we're, we're having a really different experience of what this is. Some of it is good. I love being outside, but like, I also like, you know, it's the, the day to day stuff of literally not seeing a single other person who has like, your haircut and then when i do see another butch they're usually with the festival and i'm like thank god you're here like it's just like a different a very different world um i'll also just say that like this is my first region this is my first big regional contract so i'm having a a minority yeah so just just to put that on record a bit like I am speaking specifically from hi I just got out of grad school and have lived in New York for the past year and this is my first contract outside of the city. Um and so that is just the very narrow window of experience that I have right now. So although it might sound like I'm talking a lot about like southern Utah that is basically a reflection of where I am right now and I'm sure other regional experiences are going to inform my experience in different ways. Um I, I would affirm for you that they Everywhere is different, but there are always these commonalities, especially when um, institutions are new to inviting queer or trans or non-cis talent. Having worked in regional theater for the past 
six years myself. So all the experiences you're having, completely valid. And I would not say horribly uncommon. Um, I do want to clarify something that I brought up earlier, which was that if you want us to be able to celebrate the way in which we can be visible representation for the other queer and trans people in your community, that it's important to let them know that we are here when you invite us. Big now, that. Mm -hmm. that's not to say, like, I need you to send an email blast to your patrons being like, look at these two trans actors, because that can feel weird and tokenizing, right? For me, it's more often there being this sense in everything that the institution does that you are welcoming those people already. So simply when they see a photo of me in my costume, that they connect those two things, right? Like I, I just wish institutions were less afraid to say the word trans, you know, yeah. like yeah. just say the word trans like say the word queer you're allowed i think it's interesting that when you know like shakespeare festivals festivals specifically right you know for pride month they'll like throw up like a rainbow graphic and a shakespeare quote that like feels like vaguely about love <laughs> and i'm like maybe if you had programmed work that featured explicit queerness anytime in the past 10 to 15 to in utah shakespeare's case 63 years you'd have a graphic that actually is explicitly queer to accompany pride month as opposed to just being like shakespeare quote rainbow flag right don't be afraid if you, if you want us if you want us to step into our queerness and traffic queer stories on stage i would like your support and allyship and advocacy for that community to extend beyond the work that i have to do on your stages and I'll also just, this is something that I had bookmarked before that I wanted to come back to, which is that widely as actors, right? Like very broadly, as somebody who um, was working as a, as a cis woman for a while and kept being like, why does everything feel horrible? And then went through my own experience of gender and transformation and finding fluidity in that and realizing, oh, I can really bring myself to the work now in a new way. And and that's what we're being asked as actors, right? We're always being asked to bring our full selves and to be as human as possible. And cis people get to just do that and not really think about it. But for us, there is this thing of how actually open can I be right now? How much can I bring to this story? How human can I be? Because if I show up with my full version of my humanity and you go, oh, sorry, that's just, it's just not quite the story we're telling, then, then that is actually limiting my ability to be a great actor for you and to tell a story. And I think that's really at the heart of all of it for me because I care about artistry and I love acting and I'm a nerd and I love showing up and being fully in my humanity. And I think that's why I, I do a lot of work with um, neofuturism, both in grad school and then in New York. And that's a big appeal of it for me is that it, it demands your full humanity and, and actually resists you doing anything else. 
that that's how I always want to show up. And so when you come into a room and people are like, hey, we're so happy to have you. Um, we're going to put me, specifically me, in a dress. I'm like, are we are we sure? Are we sure about about that? What is that choice? Um, I remember specifically in grad school having to play Nora in the doll's house and being like, wow, this wild. is wild. This is a wild choice. Nora. And, like, <laughs> it, and, you know, there's a world in which it works, but I was having such a difficult time just getting into that space. And I think at the time was like, okay, it's an acting exercise, which I think is true. And it was expansive and it was forcing me to, live differently but now that i've got now that i kind of have been like in the world of non-binary uh people and existence in my own life i'm like that was why that was so weird is because i actually have very little in common with this particular person which Um, is like fine it can be fine right but like acting you know it's just like sometimes because I hate wearing suits you don't like wearing dresses (laughs) I hate wearing suits right I'm not I would never be like I cannot wear a suit on stage right there's some again that's me there's some people for that that may be a line in the sand but what I often say is that the work that we do telling stories someone's artistic vision should never be prioritized over my personhood and if I am being put in a situation that makes me feel dysmorphic simply to the end of like fulfilling someone else's artistic vision. That's a problem. I would say though, I would say I would less likely have a strong case of gender distress in a particular scenario or costume that may make me feel uncomfortable. I would be less likely to have that response if I knew the room were there for me. It actually is more often to do with the environment and the team that is created. So like if I put on a suit and I'm feeling ways about that in regards to my gender, that probably means that the room has not done the work to make me feel safe from the jump, right? If a suit is enough to undo my whole headspace. Right, right, right. Um, Woodsick, will you ask questions about queering the canon? No, just Sophia. Just Sophia was talking to this about podcast. I know, oh, yes, I know. Yes, we were. Yes, no, no. Yes. I just there was a there was a moment between the, the bouncing back and forth between Sophia and I that I was just like, wow, we have not allowed them to ask us any questions in like thirty minutes. I'm so sorry. It's all good, uh, Sophia. I just wanted to check back in with you and see if you had anything else on that Nora thread that you wanted to tie up before we move on. I, I just, okay, so there's an actor in New York named Kat Griffin, and on their website, they have, like, I am comfortable doing these types of roles, and, like, here's why, basically. And I remember seeing that for the first time and being like, I could tell people what kind of roles I'm comfortable playing, including, like, I am more comfortable playing, like, queer women. Like, I could play all, I, that is a category I feel comfortable in, but there's a certain, When I think about my dream roles in, like, Bridgerton, it is not any of the female characters. (laughs) And it never has been. And so I think that kind of uh, has morphed its way into how I approach um, 
Shakespeare, but also just like historical canon is I'm more, I'm also just like historical canon is that I am like less afraid to apply for the Mr. Darcy role than I think I used to be because I'm like, this is actually how I can show up in my full humanity and have a good time and not be worried about how your perception of how I am doing drag as a woman, because that basically is how it feels at that point, is successful or not. Um, because like that when I am in, you know, we were talking about the wearing a suit. Like for me, if I am in like a dress and heels, I feel like I am mostly in drag and I like it sometimes. It's fun. I like when I do it to myself, but um, on a, on a silver platter ordered on behalf of someone else, especially a like cis or straight human. Um, I'm often like, why are we doing this? Um, because for me, that, that really just is like, it feels like a block between me and the world. Um yeah, I, I wanted to say yes, that I feel like my type, <laughs> I think type is largely outdated, but I feel like most often I get called in for like lesbian Olivia Benson kind of roles. Like, right, like I have right. a lot of exposition and I don't have a lot of time for myself, but I don't <laughs> what to do. Um, <laughs> all right. There's a certain amount I will just, oh yeah. No, no, no. I was going to say... <laughs> I was going to say, like, I also go in for a love TV film work. And there's a certain amount of freedom in that because TV and film move so much faster. So they're actually writing non-binary roles a lot faster than theater can keep up with. Um, And so there's a certain amount of like the fact that a lot of regional theaters are still programming, like, for example, Pride and Prejudice, where I'm like, how do I get into this? because I don't know who the people are that are directing. I don't know what their ideas about this particular play are. And that kind of goes for uh, a lot of regional theater for me, especially musical theater. It feels hackneyed to say it. Nodding that with you. Yes. It feels hackneyed (laughs) to say at this point, but I feel like in every room I'm in, I should just remind everyone that roles that are presumed to be cis, please still hire us. (laughs) There's no reason you cannot have a trans Mr. Darcy or a non-binary person playing, you know, whatever, who the fuck cares? It's just like (laughs) any of it, like, please, please hire us. If you're not actively looking at non-cis talent for these like canonically presumed cis roles, again, boring. Why? We're such good actors. (laughs) Yeah, and I think like, yeah, no, I, yeah, no, there's, there's something that I, I've been thinking about this for a long time and I haven't been able to like codify it, but like, if there's a way to, I think this, this applies to actors of color too and actors with disabilities, but if there is a way to quantify the acting talent that has to go with dealing with microaggressions in a way where you just don't lose your, lose your shit, pardon my French each time, if there was a way to, you know, transform that into a graduate degree in acting. I think there's there's just not the awareness of that um, going into a lot of rooms. But I just want to say I I'm grateful for you both sharing your experiences, and we're going to move on from Utah Shakespeare Festival specifically. But then also like thank you to Utah Shakespeare Festival because though it's imperfect, I'm really glad that you're both on their stages, and I hope that 
more and more of these larger institutions as we chip away at progress. You know, I hope that we see more in that, you know, one in 30 ratio, right? You were saying two out of 60. I think that the world is ripe and ready in terms of acting talent to um, change that ratio in the room. And I'm really looking forward to seeing that on a personal level. But let's talk about Shakespeare, as we've said, it's very gay, it's very queer. And we have two classically trained Shakespearean geniuses here. Talk to me what about up? talk to me about roles that you have played that have the alchemy of the room has come together to make you feel that gender euphoria or just very aligned. And and where do you want to go with queering the canon? And so where have you been and where do you want to go? Let's start with Kevin. Where have I been? Where do I want to go? Has anything I've done in classical theater offered me gender euphoria? I would say that my ideal world, every time that I have done Shakespeare, whether or not the creative team was aware, the director or the audience, it was queer because I was there, <laughs> you know, right? So like that yes. is a truth. Um, and I find it really interesting when we talk about queering the canon or, or sort of lifting or pinning up queer narratives that already exist in the text pretty explicitly. Whisper, whisper, PSPS. PS. Um, because Sophia mentioned this a little bit earlier, when a creative team or a particular production is interested in pinning up the queerness that is already inherently embedded in Shakespeare, whether that be the prerogative of the director, someone that they've hired, such as me as Parolis and Oswald that ends well here at the Utah Shakespeare Festival, mm -hmm. and you don't have a majority queer team, there's actually a lot of work that has to be done. Because when you don't have a majority queer team, when there's which is almost never, right? You have all this like this straight cis perspective in the room. That straight cis perspective actually has to be directly asked to sacrifice their first reading of the text to favor the queer one. And I think that that sounds perhaps I think perhaps that sounds antithetical to like the creative collaborative process, right? But the reality is, is that is what is implicitly asked of queer people all the time. So right. you actually do have to say, hey, we really want to lift up the fact that Mercutio is a chaotic bisexual in Romeo and Juliet. <laughs> and in order to do that, you have to let the potentially straights this actor playing Romeo know that like that actor has to know the straight people in the room have to know that this is the story that we're telling that this is the story that we want to tell because again more often than not I come into my the rooms with my inherently of course naturally queer perspective on any story I'm telling that is the way that I see the world and so often queer people are asked to reframe stories through the lens of a straight and cis understanding. And when we're querying the canon, we actually have to ask straight and cis people to do that, period, <laughs> I guess. Sophia? 
Yeah, I was. I'm just laughing because I'm. You know, we're working on All's Well. Before I'd come to the festival, obviously, I'd read the play and I had my copy of the Arden that I lent to Kevin. And in like the first scene with um the male like the the like with the in the first scene with like the in the first scene with like the romantic male lead and Paroles, I'd been like, oh my god, they're gay for each other. Like I had just like written that in the margin because it was so clear to me. I was like, literally oh yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> like literally was like, great. Okay, that's why this is happening. Okay, then I chart the rest of this. Okay, all of this makes sense because they are gay for each other. And then I got into the room and was like, oh wait, nobody else thinks that except for Kevin and I. <laughs> so I was just like it was this funny moment of me being like, wait, isn't this just so obvious? Like, similar to, like, a Mercutio or, like, you know, for me, I, I've done uh, Twelfth Night four times in the past, like, three years. Twice as Fast Day, twice as Olivia. For me, I I think Olivia is trans. I don't really see a world in which she isn't. In fact, I, I think she should always just be played by, like, a Mab trans people. Like, I think she should be a trans femme person. Um, I just think that makes the most sense. And I think Feste is in love with her. Like, I just, like, I just, like, and I, I don't really understand a world of that play where that isn't the case. That seems to be supported by the text. Um, but again, like that, that isn't always the, the reading. And I'm always kind of confused when people, when I bring stuff up like that and people are like, oh, I didn't see that. I'm like, really? It's like right here. Like, you know, with Perlis and Bertram, I was like, he, he calls him sweetheart like three times in the scene. And like, I guess there's another choice that we could make, but that seems, no. Okay. <laughs> Am I crazy? <laughs> um, and like, you know, I think, my experience of Shakespeare specifically has been a lot of the clowns. Um, you know, the, the Porter was like my first one in Mackers. Um, and like just getting to be like body and tell dick jokes on stage as like a trans mask person is like, Oh, great. This is, this is fire. Um, but I've never got to do Romeo. And I'm really curious about what that would be. Uh, I've never gotten to do Hamlet. You know that there's there's some some of these kind of canonic young men in the canon uh, that just feel so accessible to the trans mask experience um, that I would love to see more of us playing. I mean, Hamlet's trans, right? To be or not to be. You wrote a poem about this, right, Kevin? Am I crazy? Yeah, Hamlet is Hamlet is trans. <laughs> so is Helen. <laughs> um, in in, in Midsummer. Uh, just so we know. Shout out to Will Wilhelm's play, Gender Play, yes. in which they unpack how actually all these characters are obviously queer. <laughs> and I mean, Shakespeare himself, right? We have pretty explicit historical documents about his bisexuality. And Yet he's held up by the patriarchs of priority white institutions as like our guy. And I'm like, this man had butt sex and I love that for him. But like, can we not have both? <laughs> well, I mean, and that's what's so interesting is that while, yes, Sophia, everything you're saying is right. I mean, like, again, I'm like 1600s. This man was obviously queer. Look at the text. I'm also just like not interested in having to give that as a reason. 
You know what I mean? Like, no, I'm like, I, also, well, like we are here. Like, like let us tell these stories too. You, you know, as as you like it, and and goddamn Twelfth Night. <laughs> The, the majority, like the majority of the play, we're watching a man fall in love with a boy, Cesario and Ganymede. I mean, like, why, how, how, <laughs> how are we resistant to the idea of, and it's so interesting that you bring up your, these connections between um, these, these young princes who are going through hard times and the transmasculine experience and how you identify with that. And it's funny because I, I often play, you said you usually play the clowns. I usually play the lovers. Um, and very often, actually those lovers that are falling in, in love with those pants rolls, which again, I'm like, okay. Uh, <laughs> but I identify with a lot of the, the women in the tragedies. And I think that's because, not to say that we are in a place now in which the country or our world doesn't still fear powerful women. Obviously they do and fuck them for that. But also I think of course, in Shakespeare's time, the, the reason, you know, the, the Lady Macbeth, for example, is, is a powerful woman and therefore scary, right? Is that I know that people are afraid of me when they see me a, a femme of center person presenting as a femme of center, like that is scary to them. So like, I, I, I very much identify with those characters. Um, and I also, I just, I wanna play Juliet. I wanna play, you know, Helen, because I want to believe that I, I want, I want a story in which I am still desirable because in part, because of my transness, you know, like, and, and that my, like, I can still be, an AMAP person who is femme of center that is worthy of love and not only love, but also like lust, right? Like yeah. I want to feel beautiful and sexy and worthy of love as a trans person. Yeah. And I want to have sword fights. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Absolutely. But to, again, Hamlet trans, obviously, I mean, like, obviously to be, to be or not to what, I, I, what is more queer than interrogating your own mortality when asking yourself whether or not you are going to stand in your truth and stand in your power to be or not to be that is queer. Yeah. I also just want to pin up one thing um, as like a, <clears throat> former, like, very academic person. Yeah. We were talking about the fact that these plays are all from the 1600s, and we don't really need a historical, like, reason to do them the way that they make the most sense, at least to the, the folks in the room here. But um, there's this wonderful theorist named Thomas LeCur who talks about uh, the single-sex model and how it changed into the two-sex model. For a long period in, in human history, there was the belief that everyone was essentially one sex and then some of those people had their penis drop out and some of them had the penis inside of them and that was how we thought about sex for the longest time and what that meant was that there was actually quite a bit of fluidity between the genders which is why people were like afraid of women horseback riding because they might turn into men um because that was like how we thought gender and sexuality worked and i think for me there actually is a lot of freedom in that model and in terms of thinking about 
these roles operating in a world that believed that to be true. Because when we're talking about those pants roles and we're talking about, you know, at the time they were young men playing those roles, but then eventually, like even as women stepped into them, that there was actually a little bit of danger and fear about blurring those lines. Um, and that those lines were blurrable and could change over the course of someone's life. Um, because I think when we moved into the two sex model and we had a more, uh, like scientific, I'm putting that in, in quotes, um, but like a more like Western science, um, you know, cadaver <laughs> excavated approach to gender. We were like, oh no, just kidding. There's only two as opposed to there's one. And then there's all these permutations within that. Um, you know, whether that be, uh, you know, I, my undergraduate was in opera studies. So whether that be the castrati or contraltos or at least kind of beings that blurred the ranges of, um, of human sexuality. Um, and so I think, you know, that also applies to Shakespeare's world. Absolutely. I I want to frame this question well. Um, so, like, this is a really, I mean, like, I'm here with all the points that y'all are laying down. And I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. So if there happens to be someone listening to this podcast who is not queer, who is a theater maker, who is like, I want to see, I'm like getting emotional right now. Like I want to see Shakespeare through this lens and I don't know how, what advice do we give them? Oh, read Maggie Nelson. I don't know. Like <laughs> who's, who's Maggie Nelson? <laughs> no, Maggie Nelson is like a, like a, a queer poet who wrote um, the Argonauts, which is this wonderful Bluets. text. Bluets for the real, which is for the real truly <laughs> tender queers among us. For those, I, I, I promise we're going to answer this very, very important question. <laughs> but I do have to know that when I was a, a pre, acting apprentice at the Actors Theater of Louisville, this straight man who I was in love with, who I'm still in love with, is a theater maker. I actually have no problem saying who it is. His name is Sammy Zysel. He's a director. Um, gifted me a copy of Bluettes. That is so gay. Like a straight man gave me a copy of Bluettes and was like, read this, I think you'll love it. I'm like, this is so sapphic. And then I later found out that I'm pretty sure he had it because it was on loan from his girlfriend, now fiance. Congratulations, Sammy and Ella. Please include all of this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, I was like, how dare this heterosexual man give me this book of poetry by Maggie Nelson? Um, anyway, how... I think it is like getting into queer writers and scholars, though. I mean, I think that's part of it. And I think just surrounding yourself with queer community i i I don't know i think welcoming us into the room um see a i would also argue like people are doing this right now right right so actively seeking it out and being a support advocate and patron of the people who are currently working putting money in the coffers of people who are advocating for new and innovative queer work and it harkens back, I think, to the one other thing I said is like being ready and prepared to relinquish your cishet preconceptions of what things are. That again, 
and I know this goes against some of the quote unquote essentialist things I was saying is that no one's saying you're wrong when offering a new or queered perspective of something. We're saying, look at all the possibility and why would we not right. allow ourselves to remain open to it? Look how many more people we can, you know, I'm sometimes so, I'm so averse to the word like representation, you know, but look at, look how many more people in experiences we can celebrate with this work that has, still has such a firm grip on the American theater, right? Which I am of two minds about, frankly. I do love Shakespeare and asterisk, you know? Um, right. There's so many more people that we can welcome to the conversation and celebrate with this incredible poetry. And why would we not allow ourselves to remain open to that possibility? Um, I, I, I will offer this uh, in addition, I'm sorry, I'm going to keep, <laughs> but is that I wish that more people who are leaders in rooms were not afraid to defer to other people in that room who may have perspective, right? Um, and I don't think that she would mind me sharing this, but M Melinda, who is directing All's Well That Ends Well, has confided in me that there were moments in which she had wished that she had just turned to me and asked a question. Um, and that it is okay to be like, I actually don't, here's what I'm after, but I don't know how to get there. Like, how are you feeling? Like, what, what do you think we can do here? That, that when I'm hired on to do something, I am there to collaborate and to offer my worldview, my opinion, my personhood to a project, right? Like, that's why I'm there. So, let, let me do my work. But in order to do so, like you have, you have to grant that space. And we have so many codes and signals as queer community in terms of how we communicate with one another and how we communicate with the outside world that we imbue in our personhood and in the way we, we portray characters that are little things that we can tell you like, Oh, actually like the way that we just looked at each other, I think actually has more symbolic meaning than what we're allowing it space for right now. Um, the other thing that I was going to mention before is that I think part of that too can also be to choose to center a different story. So for example, there's a really wonderful um, version of Twelfth Night, I think that the National Theatre did in the UK. And there was, you know, like there was explicit queerness throughout the show. Like there was a kiss between um, Antonio and Sebastian that was like pretty explicit. Like, you know, like that story was solidly there. But the story that they really chose to highlight was Malvolia. So they made her the only, like, she was a woman who was pursuing her mistress and it was explicitly lesbian and it was punished. Mm. And then at the end of the play, she was the last person on stage and we got to just watch her like ascension essentially as the rest of the, the now straight couples putting straight in, in, uh, you know, quotation marks, uh, like are under these black umbrellas and the rain's following and, sh and falling and she like ascends in this like yellow punk get up into the sky. Love. And I think that there's a certain amount, yeah, of like being willing to be like, okay, we know Midsummer is about the lovers, but also 
what is happening over here? And like, let's actually just de-emphasize that a little bit and put the emphasis over here for a sec, just to figure out what this is. Because I think a lot of the times, especially with the romances, it's like, okay, we have to just solve this problem. And the fact of Shakespeare's plays is that there's like a thousand different plots happening. And at any point, you can choose to emphasize something else just a little bit. And that'll help highlight that story. But that's something that I think, you know, in terms of the collaborative process, it's something you could be like, actually, let's look at this. You know, how do we end the play? I love that. And I think that's, that sort of segues into, I want to interrogate this a little bit with the folks in the room. So we have queer as a descriptor of, you know, the LGBTQ, like not straight, you know, as the antithesis of straight perhaps, but I would love to hear your perspective, both of you about the verb form, like to queer something. Cause I feel like, because I feel like there's not enough people who realize that it's a verb that's active as well as a descriptor of identity. Yes. And I think I just I'm want just to laughing. clarify that for people. Laugh away. I'm Why are laughing. you laughing? I know because I've been through like seven years of higher education and there's an <laughs> auto article. Like not auto strata autos. There's an auto straddle article that's like, woman can't stop queering everything. And like that is me. <laughs> 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 like it's just like every paper I've ever written, like every thesis. Honestly, honestly, um, right, right. Like teaching to transgress queerness. Um, but uh, yeah, I think I think yeah, it is a it it is a verb. It is a verb enacted. I think particularly by like hiring queer people to do work, um, and not just Shakespeare. I should say because I off I mostly do Shakespeare at this point in my life, and I would love to do other things. Uh, <laughs> That's my truth. Right. I would love to get to live in the world beyond that. Um, and, uh, and the, uh, you know, I joke about the fact that like, I don't, I go into rooms and no one sees me as a woman anymore, which is both a luxury and takes me out a lot of stuff because they're like, oh, well, you can't actually do, you know, this new play is calling for, you know, seven like femme people. And so we can't actually cast you. And I'm like, I actually, in the world, get read as a she-heard person, like, most of the time. And I would love to get to do that on stage um, for many. (laughs) (laughs) And so, like, the difference between queer, as in queer folk, and queering, you know, the gerund verb, the action verb, um, again, I would imagine... I don't want to assume. Never mind. I'm not going to say that. I was going to say, I would imagine most people listening would. Whatever. Fuck that pre- that presumption. <laughs> um, that queer, as it is used in academia, was sort of an act of linguistic reclamation that centers the like a, a worldview, a paradigm, a lens through which we study things that uh, work to decenter cis heteropatriarchy um in that lens so when we are talking about queering the canon or or queering storytelling or queering a character right it is actually far not far less to do i'm not going to say that sex and sexuality has nothing to do with it right because i think that, right. that we often we often want to like cleanse 
um, or make family friendly the idea of queerness and queering, right? And that's not what I'm after. But I'm not, it's not wholly to do with sex and sexuality as much as it is to, again, decenter a cis, straight, heteropatriarchal lens and paradigm in order to lift up or focus a queer one. Um, and to that end, this is a note I, this, for all my directors listening. Um, I have actually received this note three times over from three different people over the past like four productions I've been in, which was like something to the effect of you don't need to play up the queerness like or tamp down. You don't have to play it so queer. And I'm like, that is a bad note. That is in, in the, in the very least it is misguided and unplayable. And I will, I'll, I'm about to tell you why. And the most is like offensive <laughs> um, because you can't play at queerness, right? What, what you're, what I would imagine they're responding to is actually my embodying a queer character given the text, direction, and atmosphere to the best of my ability. And what you are reading as perhaps superfluous queer mannerism is actually just you reacting to your own internal prejudice and bias. So that's not a no. I mean, essentially, I would I would challenge anyone to put in any sort of any other identifier into that space and see how it sits with you. You know, like you don't have to play up the otherness <laughs> here, right? Um, it's about perspective and lens queering. Yeah, I feel I feel like when I started sharing with folks that I was autistic, I got a lot of you don't seem autistic, and so like I feel like I could. Yeah, it sounds a lot. It sounds a lot different if a director would say to me. You, you don't have to play up the, auti you know, being autistic. You can like, yeah, that hits a lot different, right? Like, because it's more about the perception and less about what's actually objectively happening in terms of the actor as the art artist's instrument and whatnot. Right. I'm like, my limp wrist is actually not a distraction. If it's distracting you, I think that's your problem. <laughs> You know, I'm like, I'm like, why, why is the limpress distracting? You know, like, is it really that again, it goes back to what I was saying before. I'm like, that is a desire to protect your audiences from their own ugly biases. You're afraid that this I'm doing a limpress in the camera right now. I know listeners can't see it. You're afraid that something that reads as explicitly or visibly or st even stereotypically queer, right? will immediately make an audience shut off from being able to receive story because now all they're thinking about is there's a gay person on stage. Like, <laughs> Which I is actually... hilarious because like, we've always been, we are, we have been, we make the thing. We always have. It's right. always been us. And I'm like, don't ask me to protect audiences from their own ugly ugliness. I'm like, let them feel it. Let them sit in it. Like, yeah, because I refuse to believe that it, it actually inhibits storytelling. Sorry. 
Yeah. I had a funny, like, experience of talking with a costumer for Tempest. And, like, I hadn't seen the designs yet. But I was like, yo, if we want me to be shirtless for Tempest, like, I am here for being shirtless for Tempest. And somebody who had worked at the festival for a long time was like, don't know if Utah's ready for that. Because even just the idea of me being on stage with, like, my boots taped was going to be, like, too much. And I was like, oh, okay, fascinating. Can I tape them and be outside in in this place? Can I wear a packer to the bar? Like, it, it suddenly triggered all of those other questions of, like, right. what else is too visible in this particular space um, on stage or off? Um, yeah, I don't have anything else to say about Corey and the Canon. I think, I think Kevin... Kevin but... <laughs> I just... I also really like something that Kevin brought up earlier, and I think... Um, I feel really juicy and aligned when folks bring in like queerness or too queer and, and align it with possibility and opening up possibility. Um, and so I guess I just really want to highlight that. And I also want to highlight that as of we're recording this um, umbrella Academy with Elliot page is the number one show on Netflix. Um, and I just think, right. I think that's another great, I think he's been very generous in, in, in terms of the interviews that he's given in terms of, um, I think that's an example of doing it right. And as you said, I mean, quote unquote, right. Um, as you said before, Sophia, TV and film move a lot more quickly, but the fact that they brought him into the process of changing that character's narrative in the third season, um, I, I find that very striking. And I just, I also, I also really love the gay pirate show. So if you haven't seen, our <laughs> I love yes. the gay pirates. Our I love the gay pirates. We all love the gay pirates. Yes, our flag means death, and especially uh, Vico Ortiz as Jim. Yes, who is? Oh my gosh, I really want them to be nominated for best supporting actor. So just throwing that out there for anyone who's listening who hasn't seen the gay pirate show, please. Please, please, please go see the It's called Our Flag Means Death. <laughs> I know, yes. And you need HBO to watch no, it. No, just for, for our listeners, for our right. listeners who, well, are like, what... who go to Google, Google Gay Pirate Show and have <laughs> such results that they did not intend it to It would come up. <laughs> it's fair. Well, Along with a few other things, I'm yes. sure. But what I love about that is oh the, um, I feel like queer fandoms this is a new question that I'm making up right now. So like queer fandoms are so important because part of the reason that show got renewed is it was the highest watched new streaming show weeks, weeks after it premiered. And it really became this almost like queer to queer thing of saying, have you seen the gay, have you seen the gay pirate show yet? And the amount of fan art and like fan fiction and um, and the fact that you're having folks like Taiko Waititi talk about like, yeah, they're writing like soft gay porn and I save it on my phone and I love it. And like, it has exploded in such a way right now. And I'm just throwing this question out to y'all um, in theater or in media, like what queer fandoms have been of importance to y'all? Oh, I mean, I... <laughs> Kevin and I have been friends via Instagram like since like 2019 I think wow. 2020 because yeah. of ISF 
Um, but I think like more broadly, there is a community of like queer and trans like makers that I basically like am in connection with via Instagram that although we actually have never collaborated on anything, we are constantly just hyping one another up because it's like, for me, and this is my, this is a personal acting approach and a personal like career approach. But anytime any one of us books anything, it is good for all of us. Right. And like, I am such a fan of whenever literally anyone books anything because there just needs to be more of us working period on the end of that sentence. So I think like, although that is not just, and I should say specifically about our flag mean staff, my like creative partner, Sage Newman, who I love, God bless Sage Newman. Um, we wrote a show together, but they are currently writing like an album of <laughs> songs for our Flag Meets Death. And that's like our collaborative pro- project right now. So it is like very much in my life and they are deeply in the fandom. Um, so like I am peripherally associated with that. But like, I think there is a certain amount of like queer fandom broadly and maybe internet culture that allows us to see one another at a distance and be like, oh my God, thank God, thank God you wrote this book of poems about like being a trans actor because it like got me through the pandemic. Like, thank God that you like, it is you, baby. (laughs) I know I'm like looking at you through the camera, but like for listeners, go read, please come off the book. It's great. Um, But like, you know, able to hype one another up at a distance um, or you know, in real life community. But like, I think that goes for even like the fact that Mae Martin and Elliot Page are like friends, you know, like that, that's amazing to me. <laughs> yes. Like, I'm just like, thank God. It really is. It really is. Like when I follow both Elliot Page and Mae Martin on Instagram <laughs> and like, yeah, just seeing them post one another, you're like, oh yeah, that's just like good for my little gay heart. Like it's like, it's you know, good. and, 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 my knowledge is it's not, it's not romantic. They're just good friends, right? Like, I don't know any better, right? I think they're just friends. And that is like so lovely. Um, to answer, but to answer your question, Woodzik, I, I'm not like particularly entrenched in any like fandoms. Like that's not, it's just like never been quite who I am, but I am very interested in and appreciative of fandom culture, like specifically queer fandom culture. It really it does warm my heart and soul. So something like our flag means death, right? I think is actually indicative of not just like queer people resonating and responding or needing rather like queer representation, but like good queer representation, nuanced queer representation, because what Sophie actually mentioned earlier is that like TV and film are very actually quick to now being like including a lot of a lot is generous, more queer storylines, queer characters, queer narratives. Um, Some of it feels factory driven. You know what I mean? It, you can you get the sense that there is not a whole lot. It, it's sort of like queer. Well, it's queer baiting, right? I mean, queer baiting more often than not is actually used to say like, you know, like it's queer suggestive so that queer people will enjoy it. But we're not going to go all the way as to say it's actually queer. But now queer baiting often feels like it's like here's some explicit queerness that still doesn't feel quite for you. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> like, like it's still palatable for straight folk. Like our flag means death is just so nuanced and it doesn't feel tokenizing. 
and there's just such a wide breadth of lived queer experience on that show that's about fucking pirates, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk more about poetry. Let's talk more about poetry. We have we have two writers in our midst. Uh, Kevin, why don't you talk about your newest collection and then maybe we can open it up between the, the intersection of performance and poetry and um, what it's like to create your own work versus embody someone else's. Yeah, totally. Um, my debut full-length collection, Please Come Off Book, came out uh, March of last year with Button Poetry. Um, is obviously still available. It is out now. Uh, and yeah, it's my first full-length collection. And it is largely inspired by my experiences as a trans non-binary theater maker and storyteller. And that lens through which I approach creating and storytelling and, and having to do a lot of work of, of reframing. Um, and a lot of it is also draws upon the Shakespeare specifically and querying the canon. Yeah. Um, yes. Please come off book with button poetry. It was, you know, a labor of love. To me, writing often feels like bloodletting. Uh, <laughs> so, but yeah. It's amazing. Check it out, y'all. If you're listening to this, you want to be reading that. Uh, Sophia, talk to me about poetry and writing. Yeah, I would say over the past two years, I've been doing quite a bit of my own performance creation and my own work. Um, and I think that's partially because uh, of my MFA, UC Irvine in California. Um all MFA and BFA programs have issues, but as far as it went, I was a pretty big fan of mine, and it certainly helped me to discover my own voice as a writer. So my first full-length show was called Mother of God, which was a queer fantasia on the life of Mary, Mother of Jesus. Um, and that was my like third-year MFA capstone project. Um, and then... This past year with my friend Sage in New York, we put up a show called Guilty Party, um, which was about queerness and dating and the pandemic. Um, we both ended pandemic long relationships within 24 hours of each other. And so we wrote a show about him. Um, it was so chaotic and wonderful and great, but also like um, there was a lot of wonderful, weird things that happened with that show. Um, but Sage and I are uh, continuing to write together. Um, and I'm working on primarily poetry right now, some of which I'm sure will become a show. I, that's kind of how I always start my process, is I just write, and then I kind of go back and I take things for... Um, I kind of go back and I just, like, take things out of the journal entries and craft them into something. Um, so there's portions of what I'm writing right now that I think is going to be a poetry collection. There's portions of what I'm writing right now that I'm sure will morph itself into a live show eventually. Um, probably when I'm back in the city in the fall. So yeah, but I, I really believe in making your own work, especially as like a queer person in the world, because I'm like, I, we don't get hired enough. And like, we have to have our own, um, we have to build our own tables. You know, I think that's true of a lot of actors, but I think especially for those of us who are marginalized by the cis heteropatriarchy, the white cis heteropatriarchy specifically. Yes. 
Speaking of building our own tables, when Sophia was over in my apartment the other day, they <laughs> heard that my coffee table <laughs> was like uneven and sort of stomping on the ground every time that I would walk past it. And with and I knew they were going to. They immediately got on their hands and knees and were investigating my table, being like, I think I can fix this. Not to stereotype you. I, you know, not literally to call you out. rebuilding table. Yes, literally. they were like, they were like, I can fix this. <laughs> I've been telling they just everyone wanted a here project. that my only access to my butchness right now is fixing things and paying for other people to have dinner. So that is like, I'm the majority. I'm, and I just want you to know, I want you to know now, you can't fix me. <laughs> I just want you to know. <laughs> I, know. I love you. But never try. This is amazing. Uh, So our time together is almost up, but I want to leave a few. I know. I want to leave a few moments for anything that was left unsaid that you want to say. And then um, if you just want to kind of shout out what's next for you and how people can connect with you online if they want to keep tabs on you and your artistry. Yeah. I I just want to say really fast that especially I think – for young quote unquote women in theater, there is a lot of pressure to look a certain way, whether that be in terms of um, like the whole ingenue image. Um, and I just, if you're like a young AFAB theater person and you're like concerned about like, okay, well, I want to do the big chop or like, I think I'm non-binary or I think I'm trans, but I like don't know what this is going to mean for my career or whatever. Cause I, I teach and I have a lot of students who like come to me with this sort of like anxiety. Yeah. yeah. Just fucking do it because I've been talking a little bit about this, but like being able to show up in your full humanity is the best gift you can give anyone that you're making work with and it's the best gift you can give yourself it's going to make you a more powerful artist a more powerful writer and a more powerful human being and it's going to allow you to do your best work so whatever the changes that you've been thinking about just do it figure out the rest later get new headshots eventually if you want but like just just go after it because there's there's too little time in this world for you to live inauthentically amen amen to that what I'll first say, part of me wishes that this was like I had introduced myself with this. My name is Kevin Cantor. My pronouns are they than theirs. I'm based in Chicago. If there are any listeners in Chicago, I would love to work in Chicago, where I live now. Um, and, uh, <laughs> because, um, and I think that comes on the heels of, of what I'm about to say, which is, you know, I'm I'm an actor and a director that's been working regionally for the past six or seven years. And... What I will say is that while I don't want to give the impression that I believe that this work is transactional, I have begun to ask myself more and more to interrogate how much I am offering an institution in exchange for how much they have to offer me. And by offer, I mean, maybe, perhaps I mean like learn from, right? When when you are in so the position that Sophia and I are in right now, uh, which is like, you know, first non-cis people in an institution and some odd decades, right? And playing principals on stage. Often I'm like, I have so much that I could offer you in your community. And I, and, and sometimes I wish that those institutions thought about that a little bit more reciprocally beyond just like, you have the pleasure 
and privilege to be working here. Like that is actually not enough. Um, so what I'll say is that I'm, I'm approaching a place in, in my life and in my career where I'm like, this has to still be fun. It has to be fun. It has to be fulfilling. It has to be enriching my life because if I believe, and I do, that this work is meant to enrich the lives of others, how can I do that if the work is not also enriching my own life? I love queer people. I want to be working with queer people, you know, right? Like that's, um, yeah, I love you, queer people. Hang in there. We can do this. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Um, I have to. to keep saying I'm just like, as a slow tear rolls down. (laughs) Honestly. I'm going to do the same little uh, intro chunk that you just did because I was like, that's smart. So, hi, my name is Sophia K. Metcalf. I use they, them pronouns. I'm based in New York City. I am a tiny ripped elf. Um. (laughs) You are. You are. I call them them my little prince. The fact that that show came to Broadway and I did not hear a damn word. I was like, y'all. <laughs> That's homophobic. Put me in for the little friends. Anyway, um, honestly. Anyway, the I don't think there's anything else. You could follow me on Instagram at oh. Sophia K Metcalf. You could follow Kevin at Kevin Cantor, both spelled underscore Cantor. I'm so sorry. At Kevin underscore Cantor. I post lots of great things. You do. You do. You really do. <laughs> El-, El Morgan I- Lee commented that she has a crush on you, which I think is huge. <laughs> I died. I mean, I've I've done some I've done some digital readings with El Morgan, y'all. El Morgan, we don't deserve her. You know, I'm just like I love her you so just, much. I I, I do want to assume that most people who are listening to this understand who that is, but just for those who might not, Tony oh, nominated. Who, oh, yes. Yes. Uh, uh, he, she's she's currently um, starring in A Strange Loop on Broadway yes. with uh, by Michael R. Jackson that just won the Tony for Best Musical. Also, she workshopped on, I'm not sure if it was the West End or just somewhere in London, um, the, uh, a, a, a musical for The Danish Girl. That's right, right? The Danish Girl. Yes. When I say it like that, for some reason, I'm only thinking about pastry. So I'm like, is that the <laughs> title of that? It is. Um, yes. El Morgan Lee is truly, truly incredible. And we love you, Patty. But like, El Morgan was robbed. Mm-hmm. Just saying. Awards are dumb. And um, I also feel the need, maybe, yeah, I'm going to. Um, while we're just shouting out trans people that we love. Anish Chef, shout out to Anish Chef, who was just cast yeah. in the Amazon Prime adaptation of Red, White, and Royal Blue. Oh my God, we do not deserve you. And yet we do, because everyone needs to see her brilliance. Yeah. Well, I I love that. Thank you for sharing both of your brilliance with me and with our listeners. And um, hey, enjoy the rest of your summer. And uh, I love you. Aw, I love you too, Wadzik. Love you, Wadzik. We did it. Come see All's Well That Ends Well at the Utah Shakespeare Festival in Cedar City. And the Tempest. All right. And then hire me to do things in New York. (laughs) 
yeah. I'll put that in the episode description. Great. You're like, you're like, that'll be a link. Thank you for listening to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host and producer, Woodzik. This episode of the podcast was co-produced and engineered by Ray Catherine Morgan and edited by C.J. Higgins. It is distributed by American Theatre Magazine. If you like what you heard, please like, share, and subscribe. Tune in each month for new interviews with artists and cultural trailblazers.